HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. Hello, welcome to Japan Meets. I'm your host, Akiko Tayama, a food writer and the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day on the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, wame, nisakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cool guest. And my guest today is Jay Trent Harris, who is executive chef at the beautiful new sushi restaurant called Mujo in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, which opened in February. And at Mujo, there are only 15 seats at the counter made with cypress, and he serves an omakase-style tasting menu that changes daily based on the catch of the day. Earlier in his career, Trent worked in classic Western kitchens, including a Michelin-starred modern Portuguese restaurant out there in New York, where he was the chef de cuisine. But somehow, he decided to choose sushi as his focus. And he trained at the reputable Ginza Sushi Onodera in New York and Swords in Tokyo, and worked as executive sous chef at the Shuko in New York, which showcases a great balance between authentic and creative styles of sushi. So today we'll discuss how Trent decided to get into sushi, how and where he learned sushi making, the concept of omakase, his unique philosophy of merging authentic sushi culture and the southern mentality, and much, much more. But before we start, Japan News is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write the review. We really appreciate your feedback. And uh, also quickly, I want to tell you about HRN's summer membership drive. Heritage Radio Network, or HRN, is a not-for-profit organization, and we run over 35 member-supported weekly podcasts to empower the world through food. And this month, we are asking you to join us. So please go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a HRN member. 
today. And as a thank you for your tax-deductible donation, you can receive original swag. Again, the web address is heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. And thank you so much. Now, let's start a conversation with Jay Trent Harris. Hello, Trent. Uh, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you. Welcome for having me. So, yeah, this is exciting. I, I learned so much about what you've done, and it's just very unique background. So let's find out who you are. So where are you from, and what did you eat when you grew up? Uh, yeah, I grew up in eastern Kentucky, so Appalachia, um, Floyd County, uh, a really small place originally called Oxshire, which isn't even a town. It's just a census-designated place. It's a couple hundred people. So, uh, you know, all my family's originally from there. And then uh, when I was in high school, I, I went to school in northern Kentucky. So I, I sort of grew up eating pretty traditional Appalachian food, which is, you know, a lot of beans and cornbread, biscuits and gravy. Um, you know, there's a lot of uh, local seasonal foods, though, that we would have, you know, um, uh, like wild greens, poke salad, they call it, the type of wild green. Um, ramps, pawpaws when they're in season, kind of a, a native fruit to the Appalachians. So, you know, very American food. Um, and, uh, you know, not, not, not too much like, you know, fast food or McDonald's or anything, you know? Mm. Right. And I heard your grandfather had a small farm. Uh, that's correct. Yeah. So my grandfather uh, had a farm, uh, really like like for a lot of people in that region, it was sort of a subsistence farm, um, just growing and raising animals for the family. You know, there was uh, six kids. Um, you know, my mom had five brothers and sisters. So it was really just about, you know, growing food and providing for the family. So they had some pigs and chickens. Um, and they grew a lot of their own vegetables and foods and did a lot of uh, preserving, you know, made their own country ham and, you know, things like that. Mm, sounds like it was a very inspiring environment to become a chef. <laughs> yeah. Right. In, in retrospect, it was. It seemed like a, a lot of hard work at the time. But. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I'm sure you had to help help your grandfather a little bit. Um, yeah. Yeah. And uh, so, so before you became a sous chef, though, you were classically trained in Western cuisine. So how did you get into cooking in the first place? And maybe affected by your, you know, upbringing close to the farm. Yeah, I think uh, I, I always just enjoyed cooking. I cooked a lot growing up, um, you know, so it's something I like to do. And then when I needed to, you know, sort of find work, I kind of gravitated towards that sort of work. But I actually started, um, it's funny, I, I started doing sushi first uh, before I went to culinary school. Um, it's kind of interesting when, you know, my mom and I moved up to northern Kentucky because she was looking for work. Um, she's a hairdresser, and then at night she worked in a, a Chinese restaurant as a, a waitress. So I kind of grew up there for a number of years, just kind of hanging out in the restaurant. And then um, when I started cooking, I was in Columbus, Ohio, which is uh, you know about two hour drive away after I got out of high school. And um, you know there I, I started working in sort of a you know um, kind of pan Asian restaurant where they have sushi and they have Chinese food and they have things like that. And the uh, the chef there was a guy named Masa, 
And basically, he just needed an assistant. And, you know, my qualifications were that, you know, I was there and available. So he kind of started teaching me a lot of things and, you know, basically a lot of the grunt work, cleaning vegetables and, you know, mixing up the powder wasabi and, you know, things like that. Hmm. So I actually started doing that first and learned a lot of, you know, American sushi stuff, um, which was interesting because he would sort of always, you know, be like, well, this is what we do here, but this is what it would be like, you know, in Japan. This is not, you know, what we would normally do, but, you know, this is how you do this for this restaurant. And, you know, I really enjoyed it. And, um, uh, you know, I sort of really fell in love with sushi at that point. Uh, but I think I got to a point where, you know, at that point in time in Ohio, there really wasn't much real, um, uh, you know, sushi. And I wanted to kind of do more fine dining. I wanted to sort of work with, you know, better ingredients. I wanted to, you know, expand what I was doing a little bit. And there just weren't, there just wasn't options to do that um, for Japanese food at that point in time there. So, you know, I went to culinary school and, you know, did a lot of that training and worked in more Western fine dining for a while. Mm, interesting. Wow. I didn't know that. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it was a very unusual yeah. path to get to and come back to sushi. Yeah. <laughs> right. Okay. And then, yeah. so what was your first encounter with sushi outside that training experience? Do, do you have any like memorable moments of eating sushi? Yeah. I mean, I think my first encounter with sushi probably is a, you know, um, like a young, young teenager, adolescent. I don't think I really liked it, to be honest, because I didn't have good sushi. I think my first encounter was something that was not good, you know, and when that's your only representation of something, I think my first thought was like, yeah, I don't really get this. Why is this good? But then, you know, then when I moved to Columbus and, you know, started working and had actual good sushi, it was sort of a epiphany moment, like kind of that thing where you're like, oh, okay, I get it. This is this is really good. You know, what I had before was not real sushi. I don't know what that was. But um, so I think, you know, as a kid, I like a lot of Americans, I, you know, I didn't have a lot of exposure to it. And I didn't really understand it because I hadn't had something that was a good representation. Mm. Um, so I was very, very lucky to be in the right place at the right time with someone who wanted to sort of share, a, you know, a better version of that and um, kind of teach me about it. Mm. Right. I think when you're a kid, you have like, you know, a maki roll and you dip uh, dip it in tons of soy sauce and wasabi. Just, <laughs> you just enjoy salt and the sensation of wasabi. And yeah. it's not memorable, yeah. but yeah, interesting. And then, um, so why did you decide to focus on sushi as a chef? Um, you, th- you could have been easily successful in Western cuisine. Um, you know, I think... Uh, something about sushi just really resonated with me. Um, you know, the rhythms of it, the, um, how challenging it is because of the simplicity of it. You know, it reminds me a lot of like playing music and music is something that was always a big part of my life. Um, so I really, you know, that, that really sort of clicked with me is, um, you know, similarities to, uh, to that. And then, it incorporated, you know, these aspects of other things that I love. And I love working with my hands. I love making things. And I think sushi has that feel of, you know, being more of a craftsman sometimes than than necessarily, um, you know, other types of food that I've done that feel a little more removed from the ingredient. 
And um, so I think there was always something that I really liked about the simplicity of it, about the honesty of it, that you're really presenting, you know, um, the ingredient and focusing on those things and trying to bring out uh, the best and present the, the best natural taste of that ingredient. And I think that just was, you know, also similar to how I grew up eating, just really simple foods in season that taste like what they are. So that that really was something that I, I loved about it. And then, you know, the aesthetics of it as well, as well. I've always really enjoyed that aspect of it. It's, you know, so focused on, um, you know, shape and form and, uh, you know, the feeling that kind of comes along with that. Mm, right. Okay. Um, so how did you study sushi making? I think, uh, you know, pretty traditional way and that you know initially it was a lot of just like watching um you know there was no, there's not a lot of direct teaching it was a, a lot of you know i'm gonna let you watch what i'm doing and you need to sort of figure out how to do it so it was that and a lot of trial and error and then a lot of independent study too um you know buying books and then buying books in like japanese because there wasn't a lot of um you know, English material available and then trying to translate some of those books and then, um, you know, basically just chasing down every sort of information source I could find. I sort of was obsessed with it at the time and it would be, you know, I would go to work and then go home and sort of scour the, you know, the internet and libraries and, you know, try to find like any piece of information that I could. And sometimes it was good information, sometimes it was bad information, but you sort of through experience start to, you know, learn how to filter out what's what's not good. Um, so yeah, a lot of that, and then just having you know the opportunity to to practice a lot, you know, making my little, um, you know, taking the sarashi, making my little like fake ball of shari, and just practicing making the giri all the time. Um, so yeah, and then when I got to New York, um, you know, I think. I was doing other types of cooking and just wasn't really feeling really fulfilled by it. And I, I really wanted to get back into doing sushi. And I saw that there were, there were now opportunities in New York that didn't exist, you know, where I was before to learn at a higher level and work with uh, better ingredients and work with, you know, um, a different class of chef than, than was available before. So, uh, you know, I really decided to jump back into it and, you know, took a, huge pay cut to kind of start over at the bottom but you know I felt like it was something that I really wanted to do and the, the fulfillment of, of being able to do that was more important to me than the money at that point in time mm, right well that's interesting so but you know after you you moved to New York and then you you worked as a chef de cuisine at Aldea which I thought was an amazing restaurant unfortunately it's closed but it's just mm -hmm. a you know impressive career you already established and then you worked at the Suzume in I think it was mm -hmm. in Brooklyn that was a yeah yeah it's a great uh, had a great reputation and then you went to yeah. Sushi Ginza and Odera so how did yeah. it happen? Like you, you just went to Suzume and, uh, you know, you had a total Western, Western background, although you had a yeah. sushi training and then they hired yeah. you as an executive chef at Suzume. Well, I think, I, you know, 
I was working all day and like I said, I was sort of feeling like, you know, this isn't really what I want to do. I love that restaurant. The food was great. I think George is a, you know, he's a, a very brilliant chef. He has one of the best palates, I think, of, you know, any of the chefs I've worked with. But I just wasn't feeling fulfilled in, in doing that. There was something that was missing for me. And then Susan May, I think uh, I knew Mikey, the owner. He essentially wanted someone who knew how to manage the business side of it and run a kitchen and organize really well and kind of put systems in place for that restaurant so he could sort of step away. And I knew, you know, I had a background in sushi, so um, it was a good fit for me. But it was also an opportunity for me to come in and then, um, you know, start working on uh, getting back in um, to sushi. Well, you know, what they did there was interesting because it was sort of like Hawaiian, Japanese, Brooklyn food where, you know, the core of the menu didn't change much, but I could run, you know, whatever specials I wanted, you know, four or five different things on the menu every day. So it allowed me to start playing around with, um, you know, some different things and just sort of figuring out what I wanted to do long term. And then, you know, when, when I decided to go to Sushi Gendo Nadera, it was like, I think, you know, having eaten there, I was feeling like, well, this is, you know, Saito-san was there at the time, Masaki Saito, and it was like the best sushi I ever had. So I was just like, why not go work here? I should just go work here. If this is the best, this is the best sushi chef in the city, then that's who I want to work for. So I just decided to, you know, kind of keep asking until they let me work there. Wow. And you were there for two years. And did you, that's the time you worked in Tokyo? Uh, yeah. Just a couple of months over there. Uh, you know, I mostly spent time in, in New York. Um, and I found that really, you know, the, the Tokyo shop wasn't really any different than the New York shop in a lot of ways because they had really sort of, you know, their philosophy was from Ginza to the world. And they really wanted to transplant that culture from Ginza to New York. And, you know, everything in Sushi Ginza over there in New York was, you know, the kitchen ran the same way. Um, the staff is Japanese. Uh, service runs in Japanese. Uh, pre-meal meeting is in Japanese. You repeat the company philosophy in Japanese every day. So when you're in that restaurant, it was it was basically like working in Japan. Um, you know, so I think they wanted me to spend a little time there in the, in the main shop. Um, and, um, you know, I think it was good experience, but I, I feel like most of my training really happened in, in New York, really. And, um, it was really great because working with Saito-san, he, he has this finesse and this sort of modern approach to Edamai Sushi that is his own sort of style. And so I had some exposure to that and that way of thinking. And then I also had the opportunity to train with Sakagami-san, um, you know, in much more of a traditional feel to, to what he's doing um, and, you know, his spirit. So I think it was really um, pretty amazing. And also, you know, being in New York, it was so small that, you know, when I was there, it was basically just Saito-san, uh, Tazu-san, who has the restaurant Ika now, and me in the kitchen when we got two Michelin stars. So maybe in a, a larger place, um, I wouldn't have had, uh, it'd, been, it'd been a slower learning process, but there, there was just so much to do that it was, you know, I had to jump in and um, do a lot more. So I, I was able to really 
progress and you know learning a lot of different things very quickly. Mm, right. So for listeners uh, who have never been to Japan, and you know Ginza is really the mecca of sushi. Of course, that used to be you know just very close by the biggest fish market that was Tsukiji, and uh, mm-hmm. the new Toyosu market still is close, but. You know, that's why Ginza was thriving with sushi restaurant, which is still the same. And uh, you can spend a lot of money too over there. But but, uh, it's just amazing. If you have a sushi restaurant in Ginza, you are proven as a good sushi chef. So that's kind of a special (laughs) place. And then you were working there, so it's very impressive. And also sounds like you really classically learned, like by watching and stealing the techniques and... You create your own style, kind of. So yeah, I, I think I think you have to. I, I think um, yeah, I, I think you have to sort of approach it that way. And I think there's, you know, there's a good element about that style of teaching is that you know um, only people who are very very motivated, you know, make it. So you have to be very self-motivated to want to do it because no one, no one's going to sort of hand it to you. You have to work really hard. So I, I like that aspect of it. Mm, right. Was it similar to uh, like the famous movie Jiro Dreams of Sushi? It's kind of. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really accurate representation of you know what a traditional sushi restaurant sort of looks like. You know, everyone sort of um, is doing shikomi like prep together. Um, you know, you have Mak and I together, everyone eats a meal. Um, usually in the middle of the day, you take a nap and then get ready for service. Uh, Ginzo Nadera was lunch and dinner, so we would, you know, it was long days. Mm. But, um, you know, that's, I mean, the, the only way that you get good at something is repetition. So long days give you more opportunity for, for more repetition. So it's, it's a good way to, to grow your skills, you know, if you're, you know, if you're able to do it, mm. but it's not, it's not, it's not for everyone. And it's, you know, it's a, it's a hard lifestyle for sure. Mm. But, uh, and I, I think that's, um, uh, a good, very good representation of what it's like. Yeah. Mm. But I'm um, curious, were you the only non-Japanese person in the kitchen and did you speak Japanese? Uh, I had to learn a little bit of Japanese, but I would say it's, you know, kitchen Japanese. <laughs> <laughs> so if I had to go to the bank or something, it would be a big problem. But I could talk about, you know, fish and ask, you know, what do you need? Do you need this? What can I do? You know, things like that. And mm. uh, I mean, the most in, most important things you need to know are just height and what kind of much stuff, you know. Right. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> yes, <yeah>. sir. <laughs> Basically, yeah. right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, I you know, gin, uh, the the Ginza Sushi Onodera is a part of the company, uh, the Ginza Onodera, and like you said, yeah. uh, from Ginza to the world. So they have um, about I think it's twelve restaurants of sushi, mm-hmm. tempura, and the Japanese cuisine, and then um, in five countries, five regions in the world. And then they said out of three, uh, no, three out of 12 restaurants, they have Michelin stars. So um, Mm -hmm. they're pretty reputable um, organization and growing a lot of uh, great chefs like you. But um, so it sounds like they're open to um, non-Japanese chefs. So that's how... Yeah, I think the owner is, um, you know, that's part of what they wanted to do is sort of spread that, um, culture of, you know, real sushi to the world and re- 
represent that for people. So I think that was something they they wanted to do is have you know non-Japanese chefs, you know, not as not as the head chef, but have people train there so they can have that experience. And you know, they're very he's very proud of you know the Japanese culture and the Japanese food culture. And so I think it was really a passion project for him to sort of represent that and have an opportunity for people to train and see, you know, what real sushi is and Mm. not necessarily, um, uh, you know, gatekeeping, gatekeeping in a way of, you know, no non-Japanese are going to be able to work here. Mm. So definitely it's still, you know, led by, you know, Japanese chefs, the head chefs, the management, but they're very, very open to to non-Japanese um, you know, working with them if if they know that they're serious and you know have a lot of respect for what they're doing and are going to you know represent the um, the food properly. Mm. So did you ask for a kind of a transfer, temporary transfer to the Tokyo restaurant yourself? Uh, I think that's something I wanted to do, but Sakagami-san, you know, um, wanted me to do it as well. And I think it maybe is an important thing for the company. Um, if I was going to be working at the counter in New York, um, you know, just to have that, uh, experience and perspective so they could say that, you know, our, you know, these chefs are trained in Japan and they are representing, you know, what we're doing, um, you know, accurately. So. Mm, right. So what did you learn from the experience? Um, like I said, I think it was, it was very similar to, um, New York. Uh, you know, they really run, you know, they really run those restaurants like you're in Japan. So I think, um, you know, from Sakagami-san, you know, I really learned a lot about sort of the, the spirit of what he's doing, um, you know, kind of getting a better understanding of like um a lot of the cultural context around a lot of these things and, you know, experiencing that firsthand. Um, so I think those were, it was really more of a, a cultural thing that was important. I think a lot of the skill set of doing the prep and doing those things, I could already sort of do well, which is why I was able to, to, to go there. Mm. But, um, so I think it was really more about cultural experience. Yeah. You stood at the sushi counter, right? Serving Japanese clients. So yeah. Yeah, you got exposure to the real kind of sushi dining culture. So did you have any new learning out of that experience compared to like yeah. New York City diners? I think there's, um, you know, yeah, there's there's definitely a different sort of, you know, J- Japanese culture, as you know, is very hierarchical. And um, so some of those things are so contextual and it's it's hard for us as Americans to understand them. So it was a good way of seeing sort of that um, interaction between the chef and the guest and that culture of, you know, the restaurants in, in a very traditional sense. Because even, like you said, the diners in New York are different than the diners in Japan. So even in a place like Sushi Ginzo Nadera, where they're doing very traditional, there's still some differences for, you know, the guests that you're dealing with. So I think that was a, an important thing. It's sort of seeing that um, in that way. You know? mm, right. 
Well, I'll ask you about how you deal with customers in the south. So, uh, <laughs> that's yeah. Another, yeah. So uh, we'll take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll dive into how Trent uniquely expresses his style of sushi at the Mujo. So please stay with us. Hi, I'm Katie Mosman Wadler, Executive Director of HRN. HRN is dedicated to amplifying voices from all across our food system. Today, I'm asking listeners to take part in our summer membership drive by helping sustain our mission to expand the way eaters think about food. As a thank you for this tax deductible donation, you can receive some great HRN swag, including the HRN cap, wine carrier, or a special spice set from Burlap and Barrel. By becoming a member, you'll play an essential role in keeping nonprofit food radio on the air. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate to become a member today. Thank you for your support. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese ship knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan Asian to American, and that is why they are located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Coin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and the wireless natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit corin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Needs on Heritage Radio Network, or HRN. I'm your host, Akiko Tema, and my guest today is Trent, J. Trent Harris, who is the executive chef at the newly opened beautiful sushi restaurant called the Mujo in Atlanta, Georgia. So I heard that you had a pop-up events and it developed a takeout of Magasa menu even before officially uh, opening Mujo in February this year. Uh, because of the pandemic. So how was the experience of the pop-ups and all those takeout thing, and what did you learn from it? Um, yeah, it, it was very interesting. And I've, I've never done takeout sushi really before and since I was, you know, maybe 18 years old. And I was trying to figure out where, you know, in New York for this style of sushi, I would just, you know, we just flat out said no, no takeout. It doesn't travel well. Um, you know, I don't think it's the best way to experience it. So we just didn't do it. Um, whereas, you know, during COVID, everyone sort of had to, you know, um, reevaluate what we're doing and find a way to, you know, um, keep people working. Uh, so we decided to, you know, do the takeout here. Um, you know, uh, Fred Castellucci is a, a good friend of mine. Um, and he asked me to come down and because I was just basically locked down in New York with everyone else. So I came down and stayed in a hotel and we, you know, started planning to do this takeout thing. I think he was, you know, he, he was really um, trying to do whatever he could to keep his restaurants going and keep his staff working, which, you know, he was able to do without laying anyone off, uh, which is really great. 
Um, so yeah, it was, um, you know, from the ground up figuring out, um, how do we do this and present it? So, you know, we can give them not only a good product, but a good experience, you know, from their home and, you know, bring a little joy to people during this time. So trying to figure out, you know, how do we package this? How do we set it up? How do we also, um, provide some material for them, for people who are maybe unfamiliar, so they know what they're they're eating and they know how to experience and have a little bit of that context that normally we could just explain to them in person. So, you know, that was a big challenge. And I think, um, you know, I think we executed it really well. Um, people here had a really good response to it. And, you know, I still get customers coming in who talk about, you know, how great it was that they were able to do that during COVID. It was such like a you know, to be able to order something special and celebrate a birthday at home with someone they love or something like that. So um, they have really fond memories of it. So to me, I think, you know, that that's the biggest success right there. And, you know, um, hearing that, you know, people have such good memories of it. And it was really like something that brought them some joy during that time. Um, you know, because it was, um, it was definitely challenging to, to do for sure. But I think everyone in the industry was, you know, it's a challenging time for all of us at that point in time. So I was just happy to be to be doing something. Mm, um, right. So and then learning from it, it, it gave me some time to figure out some of the sourcing issues and figure out how to do what I wanted to do here. You know, I think something in Atlanta at that point in time is you had a lot of restaurants who were doing a lot of similar things because it all the ingredients and all the purveyors and everything that they're using are all the same. So, you know, doing the takeout gave me the opportunity to support some of my vendors in Japan and in New York uh, who were able to ship to me directly into Atlanta. So to continue to, to maintain those relationships and then figure out, okay, well, how do we do this? And, you know, how do we get the fish that we need in and the quality that we need? And how do we get these other ingredients that we, we want and where to find them and source them in Atlanta? And, you know, even just little things like figuring out, well, um, you know, who's going to be the best person to source napkins from or something like that, uh, you know, paper goods. So it gave me a lot of time to figure out that. And then also to, to start to understand the diners in Atlanta and sort of gauge their interest in, in what we're doing, gauge their response to the type of food that we wanted to do, and also their price sensitivity, you know, which is something that I was worried about, you know, coming from New York, as you know, um, there's a certain class of diner who goes to Sushi Genzo Nadera and goes to now, you know, Yoshino and Sushi Nozu, and uh, there is no price sensitivity. They don't care what it costs. So, um, you know, I was a little worried about all right, if, if we're going to do this properly in Atlanta, we have to charge a certain amount just because we need to be using the best quality ingredients that we can get. And are people going to be okay with that price or are they going to say that it's too much? Kind of that question of, does this not exist here in Atlanta because no one's done it or does it not exist because people don't want it? So that gave us the opportunity to sort of figure out some of those questions. And, mm. you know, we felt like there was a, a really good response from people. They were really receptive to it. And, you know, my business partner is uh, uh, very much an optimist. So, you know, that's when we started talking about opening a permanent restaurant here. Mm. Right. Well, that's interesting. And a couple of things. So, like, you know, the delivery, sushi delivery mm -hmm. is very common in Japan. I Like, you know, every... Like somebody's birthday, the special guest suddenly showed up and we just ordered sushi at home. And it was like, right. always, that's just made and there's a system. So delivery is quick too. Um, 
you know, uh, it just the idea of little logistics in New York or big city in America, how can you deliver sushi so quickly? And now it's kind of pandemic trained us to yeah. be able to do it and it proved it's an option. You can do it. And yeah, right. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, yeah, but uh, it's just a, it's kind of, it sounds like it turned out to be the pandemic was not so bad for you because you, you, you got a leeway um, to be able to chill out, calm down. Yeah. So. I think I uh, I had a, a little bit better um, situation than a lot of a lot of people I know who were furloughed or out of work, and I was very lucky and very happy to be able to be working and you know serving people. And um, you know I think uh, yeah I was I was very fortunate during the pandemic. Mm, right. So uh, yeah, so let's talk about your restaurant. So you opened with uh, you know you mentioned your. Um, friend and colleague, uh, Fred Castellucci, who, who owns uh, Go Restaurant Group, uh, Castellucci Sturdy mm-hmm. in Atlanta. And uh, so sounds like that's his new um, first sushi restaurant. And that's why oh, yeah, yeah, sure. they're working with you. So so what's the meaning of Mujo? And why did you name your restaurant Mujo? Uh, you know, Mujo is, uh, Japanese word from Buddhism. It means, you know, impermanence, transience. Um, and it's sort of about, you know, all the different phenomena of the life experience, but, um, you know, all things sort of come and go. Um, everything's impermanent, everything's subject to change. Um, and it's an existential problem, I think, for a lot of people that if we don't realize that we're, we're kind of setting ourselves up for, for unhappiness, that we have to be understanding that, um, you know, things in life are transient and changing. And so, um, you know, we thought, you know, especially during COVID, you know, the the change that everyone was experiencing, the change that I was experiencing, you know, leaving my home in in New York and, um, you know, it was just sort of really uh, apt for that kind of, way that we were feeling at that time that okay that you know life is uh always going to change there's going to be changes in life and you know if we try too hard to hold on to the past and you know we're setting ourselves up for unhappiness we need to be open to change and you know understand that that's part of life and know how to to move forward Mm, right yeah, so that's the, you know, evanescence of life. If you live with it, life is so much easier, kind of happier too. So, <laughs> yeah. yeah. absolutely. Like I learned through the pandemic that one too. So, okay. And uh, so what is the theme of Mujo? Uh, I think for the diner, you know, the theme of Mujo is really about, um, you know, Ichigo Ichi. Um one time, one meeting, you know, we really want people to sort of be in the moment here and really spend time with the person they're, they're with, focus on the, the meal that they're having and sort of create a lasting memory and appreciate that, you know, um, kind of tying into the meaning of Mujo that, you know, life is impermanent and you're sharing those moments with someone that's special that you're not going to recreate and, you know, just really focusing on the appreciation of that, which is also something that people have really missed out on the past couple of years and, you know, we're really missing in their lives. So I think that's really the, has been the concepts, um, you know, that we want to create that 
that opportunity for people to share that moment and create that memory. Um, and then also about, you know, translating, you know, the experience of, you know, traditional sushi in a way that, you know, we're not, we're not a Japanese restaurant. We are a sushi restaurant, but, you know, we're in Atlanta and I'm, I'm not Japanese. And what we want to do is more, um, instead of a literal translation of the experience of dining at, you know, sushi in Tokyo, we want to interpret that for, for the audience here while still being true. Like, you know, if you say to someone in, okay, uh, right. Meaning, uh, not knowing as a flower, right. Mm-hmm. Literal translation of that for a lot of Americans doesn't make sense sometimes, but if you say ignorance is bliss, they understand the same feeling, you know? So some of what we do in our service is about, you know, giving the same feeling in a way that's, you know, familiar to people, but still being genuine to the traditions and, you know, the culture of, of what we're doing, but in a way that makes sense for who I am and, and where we are, you know, in, in America and Atlanta. So, um, you know, and I think that's, um, for the most part, been very successful here, you know, um, still trying to provide that uh, of that kind of service, but in a way that's more, you know, Southern hospitality that, you know, people really uh, react to here. Mm, right. Interesting. So the, uh, the Mujo really connects with the theme of, you know, like you said, Ichigo Ichi. So Ichigo Ichi is often used as a part of the, you know, tea ceremony wars, but it's basically like you go to work, come back home, like all those things looks very similar every day, but if you just have a close up, there's nothing the same, whether your mood, ingredients, a cup of coffee, how it's made, who you meet together, how you're feeling about this, like everything is such a magical moment. And, uh, yeah. and especially, you know, your menu, omakase, everything changes on a daily basis and that's your creation. So. It's really Ichigo Ichie, meaning you're encountering um, specific ingredients today, and it's not the same tomorrow. Right. Okay. Absolutely. And and like you said, just even that cup of coffee, enjoying how you're never going to have that cup of coffee again. So you want to experience that moment, really like be in touch with, you know, those flavors, what you're experiencing and eating, because you'll never have that same cup again. Mm, Right. I really like that. And the name of Mujo, really, Ichigo Ichi and Mujo, they really connect. So I want to keep them in mind. (laughs) So uh, the Mujo is an omakase only restaurant. So an omakase means leave it to you, meaning leave Mm -hmm. it to you, chef. And the diner trusts the chef 100% and he or she will get the best fish of the season prepared in the best way with maximum hospitality. And everything you can offer as a, you know, the chef. So, so how, why did you serve only omakase menu at Mujo? Uh, I think it's just, um, one, we want to really focus on, um, the style of sushi that we want to serve. And I think in, you know, uh, in a restaurant this small, in order to focus on doing the highest quality, we, you know, we need to be very um, specific about what we're doing. We're so small that we can't be everything to all people, you know. 
So we need to pick the things I think that we think are the best, that we do the best and, and focus on those. And it, it may not be for everyone. They may not necessarily love what we're doing. And there's, you know, there's other places that they can go eat and that's okay. But I think if we want to execute at the highest level and we want to be genuine to what we think is the best, you know, we, we need to be really focused like that on just, just serving the, you know, what we think is good for, you know, for example, you know, there are going to be people who come in and maybe don't like eggplant, but we're serving eggplant right now because, you know, it's in, it's in season here and it's really good. And, you know, we don't necessarily want to serve something that's not as good just because it might please a few more people. So I think that's really, um, you know, about why we want to do omakase. And then it's, you know, it's sort of our philosophy as chefs too, is that, you know, I want to, I want to be serving the best possible food and best possible ingredients that I can get to, to my guests. So, you know, in order to do that, I, you know, an omakase menu or a tasty menu or, you know, is really, I think the best way to do that. And also, you know, it helps us really curate the experience, you know, for people um, who maybe aren't as familiar with this style of sushi because um, we have some guests who come in and are really excited and they want to experience it. But if we had maybe an, uh, you know, an uh, Okonomi menu, like a kind of a la carte menu, they wouldn't really know what to order. So in some ways it's easier um, for someone unfamiliar to say, okay, just trust us and we're going to guide you through this, this experience and either this meal and we're going to take care of you. Mm, right. I interviewed many, many chefs who offered um, omakase menu, and then they always write kind of scenario, right? Like they think of what customers want, what's the best. And it's it's not just like serving different um, dishes based on what's available, what you have. It sounds like story writing. And, yeah. and, and then you, you read a story like you don't expect what's going to come up in the story. And I really discover many ingredients that I've never, ever touched before. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Is that what you do when you develop menu? You think of certain stories? Kind of, yeah. We, we sort of think of, in some ways, a conceptual thing of a, a dish, too. We're thinking about the story of, you know, um, you know, right now we're doing uh, tokuroten, um, and thinking about the story of well, how how does this dish look here? What's the story of how this dish got on the plate? Um, you know, what's the tradition of of this dish, and you know, how has it changed um, by us being here, and you know, our experiences, and what's the story of all the little elements that have resulted in in that thing and then also what's the kind of story that we're we're telling to the guests throughout their meal so we we think about it that way and then we also think about it in the way of uh, sometimes we just get really excited about a certain ingredient and we really want to feature it and you know really um you know show people you know and share our excitement for this particular ingredient you know when it's in season you know like for me one of those things is like sanma in when it's in season and we can get it and, and serve it we just get really excited about that ingredient and exposing a lot of people to that who maybe haven't had it before um especially in this this part of america so um it's you know different approaches for for different dishes and you know i think um you know we try to keep all those sort of aspects in mind 
Right. Oh, that's a great point because I think one of the greatest themes of omakase is the seasonality. And by hearing tokoroten, I feel like I'm cooled down. It was like such a summery <laughs> dish. Yeah. Yeah. And also yeah. the summer, if you go to Japan in the fall, when the summer is in season, there are signs yeah. outside of some of the restaurants. We have summer. It's like people yeah. look forward to it because it's so seasonal. Right. And we tend to forget about it in a modern, you know, food system. Yeah, I think that's something I, I loved about Japanese food and Japanese food culture that resonated with me because of how I grew up. Is that we, you know, we ate a lot of seasonal food, and you know, like there are times of the year that you know, in fall we look forward to like apple harvest because yeah, you can now you can get apples all the time, but there's those things that go along with it. You know, we would make like stack cakes like apple cakes we would make cider or when pawpaws are in season and you know sort of august september and you can get those it's it's sort of a, a really special thing that you look forward to that you can't get the rest of the year so i i like that aspect of japanese food culture and that excitement that you know this this sort of ingredient really symbolizes the season and you know people want to experience that in the moment and you know be present in it Mm, right, and going back to Mujo, Ichigo Ichie concept. Yes. Uh, right. Okay, and then uh, so now you your seasonality totally reflects the you know climate of your south where you grew up too. Mm-hmm. So, what style of sushi do you offer at Mujo? I mean, our sushi is I would say modern Edomai sushi. Um, I think we we try to stay pretty traditional with the sushi. I don't like to to mess with it too much. We don't do tons of you know garnishes and toppings and things on top of it. I think there's definitely a place for that and people who do it. Uh, it's just it's just not my preference and what I do. I like to really focus on you know first the rice. Um, you know, we use uh, really good rice from Niigata, from Unoma, and we use um, Akazu and, uh, you know, real wasabi and, you know, fish from Japan. And then just really try to focus on, um, you know, those flavors. And sometimes there's a little bit of an accent. You know, we use some yuzu or citrus or we use, um, you know, other things. But, um, you know, we try to stay pretty, I'd say 90% pretty traditional to like, the preparation and the um, you know the flavor profile of what what that ingredient is, but even within that, there's you know there's that little variation of our own style and our own experience where it's going to be a little bit different than you know in in another restaurant. Um, so in some ways, we we have a little more freedom because we're not a traditional you know edamame sushiya, but I just my preference. I, I try to stay pretty traditional with the sushi because um, I think that's important. Uh, then with the other sort of dishes, our zentai, it's a more of a kapo style approach. And those we can kind of play around with a little more where, you know, I don't want to do too much, uh, too crazy with it, but there's a little more room for, you know, expression and changing things and um, trying to be a little more creative with those dishes. Um, mm. Right, so for listeners who are not familiar with, uh, no, zentai is uh, basically an appetizer before uh, your nigiri sushi served, right? Mm. And then kudokapo yeah. uh, is like a uh, more casual concept of the chef tries to serve you what you want. So it's kind of more your creative uh, thing. You're thinking of customers. This is right. what they might want to have. And then it's more creativity. You can just 
throwing. Right. So do you have any examples yeah. of your dishes? That yeah, you I think, um, you know, we, a lot of our dishes are sort of rooted in, you know, Japanese cooking techniques and flavor profiles. Uh, you know, a while ago we were running sort of a, a, a muscle dish, uh, Bang Island mussels, where we sort of, um, you know, we would open the mussels, uh, you know, steam them in sake and then open them, just just cooked and then marinate them in in, uh, in dashi and then serve them with uh, uh, naga negi, uh, Tokyo negi, like grilled uh, and then served ohitashi. And then, you know, we take some of the mussels, we sort of mix them with egg yolk and make uh, a muscle emulsion with some rice bran oil. Um, and then serve this dish, uh, you know, garnished with uh, grated katsumi. So there's a lot of elements there that are very traditional in the flavor profile, but the presentation and the construction of the dish is a little, little different than what you would find traditionally. And I think to the capo element of that, we're trying to, you know, with some of these things, it's, well, how do we present these, you know, genuine flavor profiles, but present it in a way that the customer is going to sort of, um, you know, appreciate it and understand and, you know, also just have a little bit of fun with it. So we do dishes like that. And then we also do some, you know, very, very traditional. We'll just run maybe uh, chawamushi we do a lot, um, but we'll do a very um, traditional version of that. It's just simple. We do chawamushi, um, you know, uh, grilled mushrooms and like ginan, uh, you know, sort of dashi glaze on the top um, and keep it very, very simple. Um, so, yeah, I think it, you know, it depends on sort of how we're feeling about that dish or, you know, about that particular ingredient. But um, yeah, I think those, those dishes are where we, we try to be a little more, uh, a little more creative and, and sort of, you know, sometimes we'll, um, present things in such a way that uh, we think it's going to be, even though it's non-traditional, it's just going to be a fun experience for the diner. They're going to respond to it really well. Mm, right. And I try to uh, source your ingredients locally too. And I heard you work with uh, Suzuki Farm. Uh, Mr. Suzuki came to the show and uh, it's just impressive how good quality of Japanese and non-Japanese vegetables are available, especially in the area. Yeah. Right. Yeah, they're they're a really uh, really great farm, and I think you know the quality of their produce is really great. So you know we try to source things from them uh, as much as we can. There's also a lot of uh, I mean, there's a big Korean population in Atlanta, so there's a lot of um, Korean farms in the area that are also growing some of those uh, the vegetables as well. You know, daikon radish and and the uh, naganegi and some of those things that are also used in Korean cuisine. So we try to work with them. And then there's a lot of American farmers here as well who, you know, come up to the back door in their truck with, you know, um, Hakurai turnips or shishitos or, you know, tomatoes now are starting to come in season. So we're getting some of them. So, you know, we're, we try to work with them as well and incorporate some of that, you know, as much of that local produce as we can. Um, and I think that's part of what makes it in a land restaurant is that, you know, we're, we're trying to work with what the seasons are here and, you know, things that are available here um, you know, whenever we can. Mm. 
Mm. Hi. Well, that sounds exciting. And I'm sure uh, you had to create, build up all the network of um, producers when you got there, probably during the COVID. So, yeah, it's amazing. And then, so who comes to Mujo? Uh, I think we, we have a really um, interesting clientele so far. You know, we have um, there's a lot of Asian guests. There's a lot of Koreans in, in uh, um, Atlanta. We have, uh, you know, a lot of different um, sort of uh, types of diner come in. We have people who are, you know, here for a sort of once a year special occasion. They're celebrating an anniversary. They're celebrating whatever we have the sort of what i like to call professional diners who their passion is just to eat out they like to enjoy good food and drink and they you know they travel all over to do that um you know we have um you know other diners who are in a position where they can sort of make this sort of a, a regular thing for them maybe twice a month uh, if they're able to get a reservation so i've seen uh, quite a bit of different and different experience levels too with the cuisine some people who have you know, have no, no experience with this food at all. Some people who are, you know, probably, you know, seem like they know more than me because they've eaten at all these, all these great restaurants. They've eaten in all these places in Japan and, you know, they can really have a conversation with us about the ingredients and about, you know, the food and, um, which is fun. You know, we can sort of talk about how we're the same and how we're the different, uh, how we're different than other sushi restaurants so we, we've seen a lot of different diners like that and overwhelmingly you know it's been a very positive response people have been really receptive to it even the people who don't necessarily understand what they're signing up for they may be more used to you know your american style sushi restaurant of you know rolls and uh, things like that um, but when they get here and they sort of sit in the chair and they experience it they're like oh i get it like, you know, I see, I see what this is and this is great. And they really, they really love the experience. Mm, right. Well, sounds like opening the real amazing sushi restaurant in Toronto really itself means something to the sushi industry. Um, so how, I mean, it's, this is hard to say, but how do you predict the future of sushi in America? Because you know, you understand the Japanese sushi culture and authentic, authentic sushi culture in Japan. So what do you think about that? Uh, it's hard to predict. You know, I think you're right. And historically, I'm not always great at predictions. Um, <laughs> but, uh, I, you know, my hope would be that I think sushi is going to continue to grow in popularity. And so my hope is that with that growing popularity, the more that people learn about it, the more um, that they are focused on the quality of what they're getting and supporting people who are doing uh, quality, whether it's the, you know, the farmers and fishermen, and then, you know, focusing on the, the sustainability of a lot of these things. And, uh, you know, I think the more people have a demand for it, the more American fishermen can, you know, start to adopt some of those fishing practices from Japan and start to, to change sort of the whole logistics of what we're doing. And I think, you know, there's already, um, you know, that's already happening in New York. And I know, I know that, you know, um, you know, Yuji-san who has uh, his fish market, Osakana, and, you know, you start to see that now that people are more interested in sushi, they're more interested in where it's coming from and they're paying more attention to, you know, where's the fish coming from and how it's caught. And, you know, I think with that greater appreciation for the cuisine, hopefully, 
there's a greater appreciation for where it's coming from and, you know, the quality and sustainability of the ingredients and also, you know, greater respect for the people who are, you know, preparing the, the food. So I hope that's, that's the future of sushi in America. Mm, yeah. Right, that's a great point because uh, we it's easy to say sustainable fish, but how can you be sustainable if you don't know which which fish is sustainable, what practice is not sustainable? And I right, think, uh, right. yeah, so like, you know, Yuji Haraguchi of uh, Osaka no Konomi and Yuji Ramen, he, he used to be a fishmonger, so he understands how not to waste um so-called yeah. waste fish that's thrown away with the bycatch. So, yeah, I really think uh, you're making a great point. Um, hopefully it's going to happen, like, you know, all the fishermen, yeah. because they, they get paid. If they, they know how to treat fish better, they get paid better too. So that's the... Yeah, and it's, you know, it's, that's been a big challenge here. And, you know, uh, with sourcing is that, you know, we continue to use mostly fish from Japan right now because the quality is just... Um, is there you know the quality is so different um, I would really love to be able to source from more fishermen in the southeast uh, but there aren't as many fishermen who are catching and handling the fish in the way that we need for the style of sushi that we're doing you know there aren't as many fishermen practicing ikijime um, which is you know the type of uh, killing of the fish and you know bleeding that we're able to then um, do sort of the aging jukuse sushi that we do. So, you know, and it has to be more economically viable. Because, you know, I understand for some of the American fishermen, um, you know, they're trying to make a living and, you know, it's hard for them to, to, to take the step and do some of these things if there's not the market for it. So hopefully that becomes more of a market and it starts to change the way that we're, you know, managing our fisheries and the way that we're handling our fish here. And that's, what I would love to see happen. Yeah. Mm, right. Well, I didn't know you you age sushi. Jukse is aging sushi, uh, the fish, so, yeah. which is uh, yeah. now very um, hot topic in Japan too because it really increases umami. I think somebody took a data and it's proven yeah. it's going to be more umami rich and uh, I tasted some of those. It's amazing. <laughs> Dramatically, yeah. it increases umami. So, yeah. Yeah, Aging the fish is a big, big component of what we do here, and that's a big part of the style. And, you know, sort of a um, part of, you know, Edomai sushi, a lot of these techniques are really about preservation, you know, originally. So it's a big part of what we do, and it, it does, you know, um, you know, when you're able to, when you, when a, when a fish is killed ikijime, you're, you're severing the nerves, you're preserving all the ATP in the muscles that breaks down over time and inosinic acid, which increases the umami and changes the texture. You know, we still get a lot of people here who talk about how fresh our fish is. And, you know, they're usually really shocked when I tell them that tuna is two weeks old, you know, that we've been aging that for two weeks. Um, so, you know, that's an interesting thing about what we do that I think people have responded to well here because it's still not really widely known, uh, you know, those practices and, you know, the benefits of like aging fish. Mm, right. Well, just to add, the ikejume technique is so humane because this fish doesn't know that I'm dead. And that means minimum suffering. And then uh, it's clean up all the blood out. So this really, um, I've 
really a way reduce risk of contamination and anything. So it's like a high tech, and somebody really came up with that hundreds of years ago. Uh, yeah. This is amazing about the Japanese sushi culture. But anyway, so um, yeah, we're running out of time, so I can talk like two hours. But sorry. Yeah. <laughs> so, what are your plans and dreams? Uh, I mean, I think plans and dreams now are just to keep working on this restaurant and improving what we're doing every day. Try to keep building, you know, relationships and sourcing better products. I hopefully, train some some chefs. Uh, hopefully, provide a, a place where people can train and um, learn about what we're doing. Um, you know, I hope to to go to Japan and you know learn from some more masters and keep uh, you know improving what I'm doing. And then, you know, hopefully, the also one of my dreams is just for everyone who works here to to have a good life and make a living and be comfortable. So really, that's that's what I'm focused on now. It's just you know, kind of the day by day of continuing to improve on what we're doing. Mm, wow, very cool. So, um, so speaking of, do you have any advice for future sushi chefs who grew up outside Japan? Um, yeah, I would say you know you really have to um, you really have to be self motivated, and I think if you're self motivated find any and every material that you can find and then um you know find um you know a good restaurant a traditional restaurant where you can learn the fundamentals and um i think you know a big part of it is just uh be um tenacious you just have to keep keep at it keep working and you know if it's something you're passionate about and want to do just keep pushing because you know you're going to hit a lot of roadblocks uh, as you will, you know, as a chef in any in any sort of uh, career. And I think, um, you know, if you find the right chef and uh, you're serious about what you're doing, then, uh, you know, you'll be able to learn. And, uh, you know, you just kind of keep keep working hard. Mm, amazing. All right. Great. So so finally, where can we find your updates online and on social media? And also, how can we make a reservation at the Mujo? Uh, yeah, if you go to our website, it's uh, www.mujoatl.com. Uh, we have reservations available through Resi. Uh, they go live the first of the month at 10 a.m. for the following month. So August 1st, uh, the reservations go live for the following month. Okay. And then uh, on Instagram at mujoatl uh, as well. Right, so M-U-J, oh, M-U-J, Mujo. Yeah, so that's at 10 o'clock Eastern time. I think it's a very crucial yeah. <laughs> information. Yeah, yeah. Like, get ready Sorry, for yeah, quick. Yeah. <laughs> 10 o'clock Eastern time. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, hopefully uh, I can manage to get a reservation one day. Um, all right. So thank you so much for joining us today, Trent, and uh, good luck. Uh, thank you so much. Okay. So, listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japanese at heritagevideonetwork.org or kikuatayama.com. Japanese is a weekly program and always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. I'm engineer Amin Spenjan, and thank you for listening. I will see you next week. Banyates is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.